Chapter Nine of Japan: An Attempted Interpretation by Lafcadio Hearn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Rule of the Dead. It should now be evident to the reader that the ethics of Shinto were all comprised in the doctrine of unqualified obedience to customs originating, for the most part, in the family cult. Ethics were not different from religion. Religion was not different from government, and the very word of government signified matters of religion. All government ceremonies were preceded by prayer and sacrifice, and from the highest rank of society to the lowest, every person was subject to the law of tradition. To obey was piety, to disobey was impious and the rule of obedience was enforced upon each individual by the will of the community to which he belonged. Ancient morality consisted in the minute observance of rules of conduct regarding the household, the community, and the higher authority. But these rules of behavior mostly represented the outcome of social experience, and it was scarcely possible to obey them faithfully and yet to remain a bad man. They commanded reverence toward the unseen, respect for authority, affection to parents, tenderness to wife and children, kindness to neighbors, kindness to dependents, diligence and exactitude in labor, thrift and cleanliness in habit. Though, at first, morality signified no more than obedience to tradition, Tradition itself gradually became identified with true morality. To imagine the consequent social condition is, of course, somewhat difficult for the modern mind. Among ourselves, religious ethics and social ethics have long been practically dissociated, and the latter have become, with the gradual weakening of faith, more imperative and important than the former. Most of us learn sooner or later in life, that it is not enough to keep the Ten Commandments, and that it is much less dangerous to break most of the commandments in a quiet way than to violate social custom. But in old Japan there was no distinction tolerated between ethics and custom, between moral requirements and social obligations. Convention identified both, and to conceal a breach of either was impossible as privacy did not exist. Moreover, the unwritten commandments were not limited to ten, they were numbered by hundreds, and the least infringement was punishable, not merely as a blunder, but as a sin. Neither in his own home nor anywhere else could the ordinary person do as he pleased, and the extraordinary person was under the surveillance of zealous dependents whose constant duty was to reprove any breach of usage. The religion, capable of regulating every act of existence by the force of common opinion, requires no catechism. Early moral custom must be coercive custom, but as many habits, at first painfully formed under compulsion only, become easy through constant repetition, and at last automatic, so the conduct compelled through many generations by religious and civil authority, tends, eventually, to become almost instinctive. 
much depends no doubt upon the degree to which religious compulsion is hindered by exterior causes by long protracted war for example and in old japan there was interference extraordinary nevertheless the influence of shinto accomplished wonderful things evolved a national type of character worthy in many ways of earnest admiration the ethical sentiment developed in that character differed widely from our own but it was exactly adapted to the social requirements for this national type of moral character was invented the name yamato damashi or yamato gokoro the soul of yamato or heart of yamato the appellation of the old province of yamato seat of the early emperors being figuratively used for the entire country we might correctly though less literally interpret the expression yamato damashi as the soul of old japan it was in reference to this soul of old japan that the great shinto scholars of the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries put forth their bold assertion that conscience alone was a sufficient ethical guide they declared the high quality of the japanese conscience a proof of the divine origin of the race human beings wrote motowori having been produced by the spirits of the two creative deities are naturally endowed with the knowledge of what they ought to do and of what they ought to refrain from doing it is unnecessary for them to trouble their minds with systems of morality if a system of morals were necessary men would be inferior to animals all of whom are endowed with the knowledge of what they ought to do only in an inferior degree to men Note, all of these extracts are quoted from sato's great essay on the shinto revival End of note. mabuchi at an earlier day had made a comparison between japanese and chinese morality greatly to the disadvantage of the latter in ancient times said mabuchi when man's dispositions were straightforward a complicated system of morals was unnecessary it would naturally happen that bad actions might be occasionally committed but the straightforwardness of man's dispositions would prevent the evil from being concealed and so growing in extent so in those days it was unnecessary to have a doctrine of right and wrong but the chinese being bad at heart in spite of the teaching which they got were good only on the outside so their bad acts became of such magnitude that society was thrown into disorder the japanese being straightforward could do without teaching motowori repeated these ideas in a slightly different way it is because the japanese were truly moral in their practice that they required no theory of morals and the thus made by the chinese about theoretical morals is owing to the laxity in practice to have learned that there is no way ethical system to be learned and practised is really to have learned to practise the way of the gods at a later day hirata wrote learn to stand in awe of the unseen and that will prevent you from doing wrong cultivate the conscience implanted in you then you will never wander from the way 
though the sociologist may smile at these declarations of moral superiority especially as based on the assumption that the race had been better in primeval times when yet fresh from the hands of the gods there was in them a grain of truth when mabuchi and motoboi wrote the nation had been long subjected to a discipline of almost incredible minuteness in detail and of extraordinary rigour in application and this discipline had actually brought into existence a wonderful average of character a character of surprising patience unselfishness honesty kindliness and docility combined with high courage but only the evolutionist can imagine what the cost of developing that character must have been it is necessary here to observe that the discipline to which the nation had been subjected up to the age of the great shinto writers seems to have had a curious evolutional history of its own in primitive times it had been much less uniform less complex less minutely organized though not less implacable and it had continued to develop and elaborate more and more with the growth and consolidation of society until under the tokugawa shogunate the possible maximum of regulation was reached in other words the yoke had been made heavier and heavier in proportion to the growth of the national strength in proportion to the power of the people to bear it we have seen that from the beginning of this civilization the whole life of the citizen was ordered for him his occupation his marriage his rights of fatherhood his rights to hold or to dispose of property all these matters were settled by religious custom we have also seen that outside as well as inside of his home his actions were under supervision and that a single grave breach of usage might cause his social ruin in which case he would be given to understand that he was not merely a social but also a religious offender that the communal god was angry with him and that to pardon his fault might provoke the divine vengeance against the entire settlement but it yet remains to be seen what rights were left him by the central authority ruling his district which authority represented a third form of religious despotism from which there was no appeal in ordinary cases material for the study of the old laws and customs have not yet been collected in sufficient quantity to yield us full information as to the condition of all classes before meiji but a great deal of precious work has been accomplished in this direction by american scholars and the labors of professor wigmore and of the late dr simmons have furnished documentary evidence from which much can be learned about the legal status of the masses during the tokugawa period this as i have said was the period of the most elaborate regulation the extent to which the people were controlled can be best inferred from the nature and number of the sumptuary laws to which they were subjected sumptuary laws in old japan probably exceeded in multitude and minuteness anything of which western legal history yields record rigidly as the family cult dictated behavior in the home strictly as the commune enforced its standards of communal duty 
just so rigidly and strictly did the rulers of the nation dictate how the individual man woman or child should dress walk sit speak work eat drink amusements were not less unmercifully regulated than were labors every class of japanese society was under sumptuary regulation the degree of regulation varying in different centuries and this kind of legislation appears to have been established at an early period it is recorded that in the year 681 a.d the emperor temu regulated the costumes of all classes from the princes of the blood down to the common people and the wearing of head-dresses and girdles as well as of all kinds of colored stuffs according to a scale note see nihongi astin's translation volume two pages three hundred thirty three three hundred thirty nine three hundred fifty end of note the costumes and the colors to be worn by priests and nuns had been already fixed by an edict issued in six hundred seventy nine a d afterwards these regulations were greatly multiplied and detailed but it was under the tokugawa rulers a thousand years later that sumptuary laws obtained their most remarkable development and the nature of them is best indicated by the regulations applying to the peasantry every detail of the farmer's existence was prescribed for by law from the size form and cost of his dwelling down even to such trifling matters as the number and the quality of the dishes to be served to him at meal-times a farmer with an income of one hundred koku of rice let us say ninety to a hundred pounds per annum might build a house sixty feet long but no longer he was forbidden to construct it with a room containing an alcove and he was not allowed except by special permission to roof it with tiles none of his family were permitted to wear silk and in case of the marriage of his daughter to a person legally entitled to wear silk the bridegroom was to be requested not to wear silk at the wedding three kinds of viands only were to be served at the wedding of such a farmer's daughter or son and the quality as well as the quantity of the soup fish or sweetmeats offered to the wedding guests were legally fixed so likewise the number of the wedding gifts even the cost of the presents of rice wine and dried fish was prescribed and the quality of the single fan which it was permissible to offer the bride at no time was a farmer allowed to make any valuable presents to his friends at the funeral he might serve the guests with certain kinds of plain food but if rice wine were served it was not to be served in wine cups only in soup cups the latter regulation probably referred to shinto funerals especially on the occasion of a child's birth the grandparents were allowed to make only four presents according to custom including one cotton baby dress and the values of the presents were fixed on the occasion of the boys festival the presents to be given to the child by the whole family including grandparents were limited by law to one paper flag and two toy spears 
a farmer whose property was assessed at fifty koku was forbidden to build a house more than forty-five feet long at the wedding of his daughter the gift girdle was not to exceed fifty sen in value and it was forbidden to serve more than one kind of soup at the wedding feast a farmer with a property assessed at twenty koku was not allowed to build a house more than thirty-six feet long or to use in building it such superior qualities of wood as keyaki or hinoki the roof of his house was to be made of bamboo thatch or straw and he was strictly forbidden the comfort of floor mats on the occasion of the wedding of his daughter he was forbidden to have fish or any roasted food served at the wedding feast the women of his family were not allowed to wear leather sandals they might wear only straw sandals or wooden clogs and the thongs of the sandals or the clogs were to be made of cotton the women were further forbidden to wear hair bindings of silk or hair ornaments of tortoise shell but they might wear wooden combs and combs of bone not ivory the men were forbidden to wear stockings and their sandals were to be made of bamboo Note, there are sandals or clogs made of bamboo wood but the meaning here is bamboo grass End of note. they were also forbidden to use sunshades higasa or paper umbrellas a farmer assessed at tenkoku was forbidden to build a house more than thirty feet long the women of his family were required to wear sandals with thongs of bamboo grass at the wedding of a son or daughter one present only was allowed a quilt chest at the birth of his child one present only was to be made namely one toy spear in the case of a boy or one paper doll or one mud doll in the case of a girl as for the more unfortunate class of farmers having no land of their own and officially termed misonomi or water drinkers it is scarcely necessary to remark that these were still more severely restricted in regard to food apparel etc they were not even allowed for example to have a quilt chest as a wedding present but a fair idea of the complexity of these humiliating restrictions can only be obtained by reading the documents published by professor wigmore which chiefly consists of paragraphs like these the collar and the sleeve ends of the clothes may be ornamented with silk and an obi soft girdle of silk or crepe silk may be worn but not in public a family ranking less than twenty koku must use the takeda one takeda rice bow and the nikosen niko tray these were utensils of the cheapest kind of lacquerware large farmers or chiefs of kumi may use umbrellas but small farmers and farm laborers must use only mino straw raincoats and broad straw hats these documents published by professor wigmore contain only the regulations issued for the daimyat of mysuru but regulations equally minute and vexatious appear to have been enforced throughout the whole country in izumo i found that prior to meiji there were sumptuary laws prescribing not only the material of the dresses to be worn by the various classes but even the colors of them and the designs of the patterns 
the size of rooms as well as the size of houses was fixed there by law also the height of buildings and of fences the number of windows the material of construction it is difficult for the western mind to understand how human beings could patiently submit to laws that regulated not only the size of one's dwelling and the cost of its furniture but even the substance and character of clothing not only the expense of a wedding outfit but the quality of the marriage feast and the quality of the vessels in which the food was to be served not only the kind of ornaments to be worn in a woman's hair but the material of the thongs of her sandals not only the price of presents to be made to friends but the character and the cost of the cheapest toy to be given to a child and the peculiar constitution of society made it possible to enforce this sumptuary legislation by communal will the people were obliged to coerce themselves each community as we have seen had been organized in groups of five or more households called kumi and the heads of the households forming a kumi elected one of their number as kumi gashira or group chief directly responsible to the high authority the kumi was accountable for the conduct of each and all of its members and each member was in some sort responsible for the rest every member of a kuni declares one of the documents above mentioned must carefully watch the conduct of his fellow members if any one violates these regulations without due excuse he is to be punished and his kumi will also be held responsible responsible even for the serious offence of giving more than one paper doll to a child but we should remember that in early greek and roman societies there was much legislation of a similar kind the laws of sparta regulated the way in which a woman should dress her hair the laws of athens fixed the number of her robes at rome in early times women were forbidden to drink wine and a similar law existed in the greek cities of miletus and massilia in rhodes and byzantium the citizen was forbidden to shave in sparta he was forbidden to wear a moustache i need scarcely refer to the later roman laws regulating the cost of marriage feasts and the number of guests that might be invited to a banquet for this legislation was directed chiefly against luxury the astonishment evoked by japanese sumptuary laws particularly as inflicted upon the peasantry is justified less by the general character than by the implacable minuteness the ferocity of detail where a man's life was legally ordered even to the least particulars even to the quality of his footgear and headgear the cost of his wife's hairpins and the price of his child's doll one could hardly suppose that freedom of speech would have been tolerated it did not exist and the decree to which speech became regulated can be imagined only by those who have studied the spoken tongue the hierarchical organization of society was faithfully reflected in the conventional organization of language in the ordination of pronouns nouns and verbs in the grades conferred upon adjectives by prefixes or suffixes with the same merciless exactitude 
which prescribed rules for dress diet and manner of life all utterance was regulated both negatively and positively but positively much more than negatively there was little insistence upon what was not to be said but rules innumerable decided exactly what should be said the word to be chosen the phrase to be used early training enforced caution in this regard everybody had to learn that only certain verbs and nouns and pronouns were lawful when addressing superiors and other words permissible only when speaking to equals or to inferiors even the uneducated were obliged to learn something about this but education cultivated a system of verbal etiquette so multiform that only the training of years could enable anyone to master it among the higher classes this etiquette developed almost inconceivable complexity grammatical modifications of language which by implication exalted the person addressed or humbly depreciated the person addressing must have come into general use at some very early period but under subsequent chinese influence these forms of propitiatory speech multiplied exceedingly from the mikado himself who still makes use of personal pronouns or at least pronominal expressions forbidden to any other mortal down through all the grades of society each class had an eye peculiarly its own of terms corresponding to you or though there are still sixteen in use but formerly there were many more there are yet eight different forms of the second person singular used only in addressing children pupils or servants note the sociologist will of course understand that these facts are not by any means inconsistent with that very sparing use of pronouns so amusingly discussed in percival lowell's soul of the far east in societies where subjection is extreme there is an avoidance of the use of personal pronouns though as herbert spencer points out in illustrating this law it is just among such societies that the most elaborate distinctions in pronominal forms of address are to be found End of note. honorific or humble forms of nouns indicating relationship were similarly multiplied and graded there are still in use nine terms signifying father nine terms signifying mother eleven terms for wife eleven terms for son nine terms for daughter and seven terms for husband the rules of the verb above all were complicated by the exigencies of etiquette to a degree of which no idea can be given in any brief statement at nineteen or twenty years of age a person carefully trained from childhood might have learned all the necessary verbal usages of respectable society but for a mastery of the etiquette of superior converse many more years of study and experience were required with the unceasing multiplication of ranks and classes there came into existence a corresponding variety of forms of language it was possible to ascertain to what class a man or a woman belonged by listening to his or to her conversation the written like the spoken tongue was regulated by strict convention 
the forms used by women were not those used by men and those differences in verbal etiquette arising from the different training of the sexes resulted in the creation of a special epistolary style a woman's language which remains in use and this sex differentiation of language was not confined to letter writing there was a woman's language also of converse varying according to class even today in ordinary conversation an educated woman makes use of words and phrases not employed by men samurai women especially had their particular forms of expression in feudal times and it is still possible to decide from the speech of any woman brought up according to the old home training whether she belongs to a samurai family of course the matter as well as the manner of converse was restricted the nature of the restraints upon free speech can be inferred from the nature of the restraints upon freedom of demeanour demeanour was most elaborately and mercilessly regulated not merely as to obeisances of which there were countless grades varying according to sex as well as class but even in regard to facial expression the manner of smiling the conduct of the breath the way of sitting standing walking rising everybody was trained from infancy in this etiquette of expression and deportment at what period it first became a mark of disrespect to betray by look or gesture any feeling of grief or pain in the presence of a superior we cannot know there is reason to believe that the most perfect self-control in this regard was enforced from prehistoric times but there was gradually developed partly perhaps under chinese teaching a most elaborate code of deportment which exacted very much more than impassiveness it required not only that any sense of anger or pain should be denied all outward expression but that the sufferer's face and manner should indicate the contrary feeling sullen submission was an offence mere impassive obedience inadequate the proper degree of submission should manifest itself by a pleasant smile and by a soft and happy tone of voice the smile however was also regulated one had to be careful about the quality of the smile it was a mortal offence for example so to smile in addressing a superior that the back teeth could be seen in the military class especially this code of demeanour was ruthlessly enforced samurai women were required like the women of sparta to show signs of joy on hearing that the husbands or sons had fallen in battle to betray any natural feeling under the circumstances was a grave breach of decorum and in all classes demeanour was regulated so severely that even today the manners of the people everywhere still reveal the nature of the old discipline the strangest fact is that the old-fashioned manners appear natural rather than acquired instinctive rather than made by training the bow the sibilant in drawing of the breath which accompanies the prostration and is practised also in praying to the gods the position of the hands upon the floor in the moment of greeting or of farewell the way of sitting or rising or walking in presence of a guest the manner of receiving or presenting anything all these ordinary actions have a charm of seeming naturalness that mere teaching seems incapable of producing 
and this is still more true of the higher etiquette the exquisite etiquette of the old-time training in cultivated classes particularly as displayed by women we must suppose that the capacity to acquire such manners depends considerably upon inheritance that it could only have been formed by the past experience of the race under discipline what such discipline as regards politeness must have signified for the mass of the people may be inferred from the enactment of Iyasu authorizing a samurai to kill any person of the three inferior classes guilty of rudeness be it observed that Iyasu was careful to qualify the meaning of rude he said that the japanese term for a rude fellow signified an other than expected person so that to commit an offence worthy of death it was only necessary to act in an unexpected manner that is to say contrary to prescribed etiquette the samurai are the masters of the four classes agriculturists artisans and merchants may not behave in a rude manner towards samurai the term for a rude man is an other than expected fellow and a samurai is not to be interfered with in cutting down a fellow who has behaved to him in a manner other than is expected the samurai are grouped into direct retainers secondary retainers and nobles and retainers of high and low grade but the same line of conduct is equally allowable to them all towards an other than expected fellow article forty five but there is little reason to suppose that iyasu created any new privilege of slaughter he probably did no more than confirm by enactment certain long-established military rights stern rules about the conduct of inferiors to superiors would seem to have been pitilessly enforced long before the rise of the military power we read that the emperor yuriaku in the latter part of the fifth century killed a steward for the misdemeanor of remaining silent through fear when spoken to we also find it recorded that he struck down a maid of honor who had brought him a cup of wine and that he would have cut off her head but for the extraordinary presence of mind which enabled her to improvise a poetical appeal for mercy her only fault had been that in carrying the wine cup she failed to notice that a leaf had fallen into it probably because court custom obliged her to carry the cup in such a way as not to breathe upon it for emperors and high nobles were served after the manner of gods it is true that yuriaku was in the habit of killing people for little mistakes but it is evident that in the cases cited such mistakes were regarded as breaches of long-established decorum probably before as well as after the introduction of the chinese penal codes the so-called ming and tsing codes by which the country was ruled under the shoguns the bulk of the nation was literally under the rod common folk were punished by cruel whippings for the most trifling offences for serious offences death by torture was an ordinary penalty and there were extraordinary penalties as savage or almost as savage as those established during our own medieval period 
burnings and crucifixions and quarterings and boiling alive in oil the documents regulating the life of village folk do not contain any indication of the severity of legal discipline the kumicho declarations that such and such conduct shall be punished suggest nothing terrible to the reader who has not made himself familiar with the ancient codes as a matter of fact the term punishment in a japanese legal document might signify anything from a trifling fine up to burning alive some evidence of the severity used to repress quarrelling even as late as the time of Iyasu, may be found in a curious letter of captain saris who visited japan in sixteen thirteen the first of july wrote the captain two of our company happened to quarrel the one with the other and were very likely to have gone into the field i e to have fought a duel to the endangering of us all for it is a custom here that whosoever draws a weapon in anger although he do no harm therewith he is presently cut in pieces and doing but small hurt not only themselves are so executed but their whole generation the literal meaning of cut in pieces he explains later on when recounting in the same letter an execution that came under his observation in the eighth three japonians were executed viz two men and one woman the cause this the woman none of the honestest her husband being travelled from home had appointed these two their several hours to repair unto her the latter man not knowing of the former and coming in before the hour appointed found the first man and enraged thereat he whipped out his katan katana and wounded both of them very sorely having very near hewn the chine of the man's back in two but as well as he might he cleared himself and recovering his katan wounded the other the street taking notice of the fray forthwith seized upon them led them aside and acquainted king foyne therewith and sent to know his pleasure for according to his will the parties executed who presently gave order that they should cut off their heads which done every man that listed as very many did came to try the sharpness of the katans upon the corpse so that before they left off they had hewn them all three into pieces as small as a man's hand and yet notwithstanding did not then give over but placing the pieces one upon another would try how many of them they could strike through at a blow and the pieces are left to the fowls to devour evidently the execution was in this case ordered for cause more serious than the offence of fighting but it is true that quarrels were strictly forbidden and rigorously punished though privileged to cut down other than expected people of inferior rank the military class itself had to endure a discipline even more severe than that which it maintained the penalty for a word or a look that displeased or for a trifling mistake in performance of duty might be death in most cases the samurai was permitted to be his own executioner in the right of self-destruction was deemed a privilege 
but the obligation to thrust the dagger deeply into one's belly on the left side and then draw the blade slowly and steadily across to the right side so as to sever all the entrails was certainly not less cruel than the vulgar punishment of crucifixion or rather double transfixion just as all matters relating to the manner of the individual's life were regulated by law so were all matters relating to his death the quality of his coffin the expenses of his interment the order of his funeral the form of his tomb in the seventh century laws were passed to the effect that no one should be buried with unseemly expense and these laws fixed the cost of funerals according to rank and grade subsequent edicts decided the dimensions and material of coffins and the size of graves in the eighth century every detail of funerals for all classes of persons from prince to peasant was fixed by decree other laws and modifications of laws were made upon the subject in later centuries but there appears to have always been a general tendency to extravagance in the matter of funerals a tendency so strong that in spite of centuries of sumptuary legislation it remains to-day a social danger this can easily be understood if we remember the beliefs regarding duty to the dead and the consequent desire to honour and to please the spirit even at the risk of family impoverishment most of the legislation to which reference has already been made must appear to modern minds tyrannical and some of the regulations seem to us strangely cruel there was moreover no way of evading or shirking these obligations of law and custom whoever failed to fulfil them was doomed to perish or to become an outcast implicit obedience was the condition of survival the tendency of such regulation was necessarily to suppress all mental and moral differentiation to numb personality to establish one uniform and unchanging type of character and such was the actual result to this day every japanese mind reveals the lines of that antique mould by which the ancestral mind was compressed and limited it is impossible to understand japanese psychology without knowing something of the laws that helped to form it or rather to crystallize it under pressure yet on the other hand the ethical effects of this iron discipline were unquestionably excellent it compelled each succeeding generation to practice the frugality of the forefathers and that compulsion was partly justified by the great poverty of the nation it reduced the cost of living to a figure far below our western comprehension of the necessary it cultivated sobriety simplicity economy it enforced cleanliness courtesy and hardihood and strange as the fact may seem it did not make the people miserable they found the world beautiful in spite of all their trouble and the happiness of the old life was reflected in the old japanese art much as the joyousness of greek life yet laughs to us from the vase designs of forgotten painters and the explanation is not difficult we must remember that the coercion was not exercised only from without 
it was really maintained from within. The discipline of the race was self-imposed. The people had gradually created their own social conditions, and therefore legislation conserving those conditions, and they believed that legislation the best possible. They believed it to be the best possible for the excellent reason that it had been founded upon their own moral experience, and they could greatly endure because they had great faith. Only religion could have enabled any people to bear such discipline without degenerating into mopes and cowards, and the Japanese never so degenerated. The traditions that compelled self-denial and obedience also cultivated courage and insisted upon cheerfulness. The power of the ruler was unlimited because the power of all the dead supported him. Laws, says Herbert Spencer, whether written or unwritten, formulate the rule of the dead over the living. In addition to that power which past generations exercise over present generations by transmitting their natures, bodily and mental, and in addition to the power they exercise over them by bequeathed habits and modes of life, there is the power they exercise through the regulations of public conduct handed down orally or in writing. I emphasize these truths, he adds, for the purpose of showing that they imply a tacit ancestor worship. Of no other laws in the history of human civilization are these observations more true than of the laws of old Japan. Most strikingly did they formulate the rule of the dead over the living. And the hand of the dead was heavy. It is heavy upon the living even today. End of chapter 9 Recording by Julia Niedermeyer.